Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, going on strike is something that people with no personal experience are comfortable depicting as frivolous or selfish. That extends to many corporate news reporters who appear unable to present a labor action as other than, first and foremost, an unwanted interruption of a natural order. However else they explain the issues at stake or humanistically portray individual strikers, the overarching narrative is that workers are pressing their luck and that owners, who make their money off the efforts of those workers, are not to be questioned. It's a weird presentation, whether it's baristas or dock workers or TV and movie writers. As we record on May 25th, the Writers Guild strike is on its 23rd day and having the intended effect of shutting down production on sets around the country. Eric Thurm wrote a useful explainer on the WGA strike for GQ. Thurm is campaigns coordinator for the National Writers Union and a steering committee member of the Freelance Solidarity Project. We'll hear from him about some behind-the-scenes aspects of the strike affecting what you may see on screen. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. CNN aired a special report, What Happened to San Francisco?, that wondered, can the city be saved? As Ari Paul writes for FAIR.org, what mainly happened to San Francisco is that it became the target of right-wing attacks. CNN claimed that, quote, the city by the bay is now at the forefront of the nation's homelessness, mental illness, and drug addiction crises, close quote, and that some, quote, residents worry Northern California's largest municipality could become a so-called failed city, close quote. This is of a piece with an elite media chorus that, Paul reminds, treated the recent closing of a Bay Area Whole Foods like Afghanistan falling to the Taliban. The story is that permissive policies protecting the homeless have allowed a zombie army of criminals to control the city, countered only by a police force that can do nothing, democratic politicians fearful to act, and tech bosses cowering in fear. Rupert Murdoch fair for ages, this is being embraced by more centrist press as well. The New York Times reported the fatal stabbing of tech executive Bob Lee as a symbol of, quote, deepening frustration over the city's homelessness crisis, close quote, until, oops, another tech leader, housed as it happens, was arrested for the murder. The term failed city, which The Atlantic used to headline a piece that blamed San Francisco's soft spot for vagabonds, evokes the failed state designation popularized in the 90s to refer to a nation state utterly incapable of sustaining itself as a member of the international community, a definition that seems designed to invite intervention by said community. It's a place where civil society has broken down amid collapse in central governance. Well, the news site SFGate has noted that violent crime rates in San Francisco are not outliers but match national trends. Local TV station KGO reports that the San Francisco Police Department budget increased by 4.4% from 2019 to 2022. 
CDC data notes that the highest rates of drug overdose mortality are in West Virginia, Tennessee, Louisiana, and Kentucky, with California far behind. Department of Agriculture research shows that the highest poverty states are Louisiana, West Virginia, New Mexico, and Mississippi. And Forbes' 2023 list of the most dangerous cities cites New Orleans, Detroit, St. Louis, and Memphis, as well as Mobile and Birmingham, Alabama, but not San Francisco. Seven cities have higher rates of homelessness, including New York City, L.A., and Las Vegas. Meanwhile, a pending lawsuit from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights says that from 2015 to 2022, San Francisco only built 33 percent of the deeply affordable housing units it promised, and only a quarter of actual housing production went to affordable housing. And, elite hand-wringing aside, Paul notes, there is thus far no major world body that considers the loss of a Whole Foods a valid metric of societal meltdown. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Whenever workers find their employment conditions or those of their co-workers so difficult or dangerous, so precarious, or simply so unfair that they make the decision to withhold their labor in order to affect change, it's a big deal, sometimes a life-altering one for individuals and sometimes a sea change for an industry. But folks who have never been in that situation don't always understand it, and some don't try. What looks like public support for the ongoing strike by the Writers Guild of America may stem from the fact that it centers on the people who write the TV shows and movies that help many of us get through this thing called life. But does that mean it includes an understanding of the role that power and the balance of power plays in all labor actions, that could definitely be an added benefit, no matter the particular outcomes here. Eric Thurm is the campaigns coordinator for the National Writers Union and a steering committee member of the Freelance Solidarity Project. His explainer on the writers' strike appeared recently in GQ, and he joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Eric Thurm. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, labor actions in various industries are definitely perceived differently by the broader public and by the news media that report on them. I think that difference stems in part from just a lack of consistent worker-centered journalism generally, but also from this idea of just, well, if you make more money than I do, I can't see your beef. You know, in, in the case of writers, it goes up a notch as with athletes. You make money doing something fun. You know, it, it, it becomes almost how dare you. And there's a lot wrong with that. But part of it is this laser focus on money. Pay is central often. And why wouldn't it be? That's the literal currency of valuing work. But labor actions are virtually always about something more than that. So take your time, if you would, and break down, particularly those behind-the-scenes industry specifics uh, that we as outsiders might not see, but should see as the central issues in what looks like an important strike. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there are a couple of things that are driving the strike 
One of them is that for all that there is a popular perception that writers get paid extremely well, that increasingly is not the case. And in the same way that it is, like you mentioned, for athletes or for actors or for a lot of other highly visible professions, there is a very small number of people at the top who basically have a winning lottery ticket and just get paid extremely well. But in order to even have a chance at winning that, you have to spend a lot of time in the trenches with much worse working conditions, often even less pay. I think that a lot of people that might be reading about the strike and turning their noses up with a lot less stability. And in particular, original source of stability and the reason that a lot of people have been able to make a career as writers is because of something called residuals, which basically is an amount of money that you get paid when something that you worked on and, and are credited on gets used in another context. So that's why if you ever have heard people talk about syndication or like getting to 100 episodes, if you wrote, let's say, one episode of Friends, and when that gets to the point where it just is like on PBS all the time, you get a check every time it airs. And that functions as an additional bit of stability, particularly because even people that have been successful often have very long periods without working just because of the nature of the industry. And that safety net, I think, as like safety nets for people in all industries are, are being slowly dismantled or as bosses are trying to dismantle them, that is a safety net that a lot of writers don't have anymore especially because the residual payments for streaming are basically nothing. So in theory, you could write something that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are watching on Netflix or Hulu or something, and you will see no additional money from that. I think viewers understand that we're watching media differently today. I can watch a whole series that took months or years to create in a weekend, and I'm like, well, that's that. As media critics, we don't blame the people, but there are things that we don't see that could be useful for us to understand. And I think residuals is definitely one of those. And then also you write about something called a, a mini room, like it has to do with the pipeline of how you grow and get work as a writer that I don't see just watching TV, but is very meaningful for the quality of what I see. Totally. And that's something that if you, like me, are a big nerd about this sort of thing, you sort of start to notice people's names popping up in different contexts and credits of things. And you, if you pay a lot of attention, you start to see that pipeline. But for a lot of people, it definitely is invisible. So basically, a mini room essentially means a writer's room that has fewer writers in it and is convened for less time. There are supposed to be basic minimums in the WGA contract, and they're the minimum basic agreement that stipulate if you are making this type of TV show, you have to have this number of writers, and they have to be employed for X amount of time. And that is also an additional source of stability, but it also is how people learn the business and how people learn how to produce or how to eventually make their own shows. So if you are the new writer, which in, in a lot of respects is still kind of a misnomer because, of, you know, when, by the time somebody gets staffed on their first room, if they're working in TV, it's very possible, if not likely, that they have been grinding away at, at a lot of other things for a long time. But once you get that credit, 
you spend time around the showrunners and the people that are more senior to you who know a little bit more about the industry and you observe them. A lot of the time, writers will go to set to supervise on episodes that they wrote, which can be really important for a lot of reasons, both because it is useful training for the writer, but also because a lot of decisions get made on a snap basis on set. And the writer is the person who knows where the show is going, where the show has been. You know, I think people have this assumption that everybody knows everything about the overall plan of the show at any given moment. Mm -hmm. But if you're the director or the cinematographer or even some of the actors, you don't know that. And so things that might feel disjointed to people if you're watching something that, for example, has a mini room would probably actually be much better and make more sense if there had been a writer on set to be like, actually, this is where we're taking it. Let's make a decision that's more in line with the overall creative direction. And that also is how people learn all the ins and outs of this stuff. And without having that, there just is no way for people to get better at their craft or to develop any of the skills that people need to have in order to make any of the stuff that we like. Just to give one example, Vince Gilligan, who created... Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and, you know, this stuff that people really like, worked for quite a while on The X-Files and wrote a bunch of episodes and produced some of the episodes and then eventually ran this very brief spinoff. And you can really see how those careers develop, right? People that don't emerge out of nowhere knowing how to run the small army that is a, a TV production. It also sounds just a little bit like a lot of other workplaces where... Management says, ooh, if you work 40 hours, you get benefits, so we're just going to book two people for 20 hours. Like, it sounds like evading valuing people. And and one of the things that you wrote in the GQ piece was emerging technologies will continue to be a tool for companies seeking to reduce the amount they pay workers or to get rid of them entirely. And I just think that's another issue where people are kind of Shadow-informed, halfway-informed, it's not that writers hate technology, obviously, or hate AI or don't understand it, but it's another part of kind of the power relationship here. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I talked about a little bit in the piece is that technology has been a source of struggle for decades in uh, particularly the Writers Guild contracts because essentially every time technology evolves, the studios will use it as a way to attempt to cut workers out, which I suspect a lot of people will be intimately familiar with. You know, this is the sort of like business model of some of the sort of biggest companies and most worker hostile companies in the world. And that dates back to when home video emerged or when DVD box sets emerged. And part of the reason that streaming pays so little is that it was new the last time that the writers went on strike in 2007, and they sort of agreed to have it be covered by the minimum basic agreement, but not as fully as like a TV network. And so, of course, like the companies exploited that as much as possible. And like on some level, it's hard to blame them, at least in the sense that, right, the the purpose of the company is to take as much value out of the workers as it can. And this is what people are referring to when they say that the studios are really trying as much as possible to turn writing, but also acting and all of the other myriad jobs that go into making entertainment that people watch into gig work, Mm -hmm. into stuff where you just have no say in, in your work and are told, 
by this unfeeling algorithm or app or whatever it is, what you are and are not supposed to do. And in the context of what people like to call AI, beyond the fact that the educational issue with a lot of these programs is that they are trained on a lot of other people's work. Mm -hmm. I saw someone recently describe it as this is just a plagiarism machine, which I think is like a very accurate uh, description. Even in cases where it does something interesting, you can use it as a smokescreen to avoid having to credit the people that created something. I think that's something that we are going to see the studios try more and more, even without necessarily having AI be involved. Like literally just the day before we're having this conversation, HBO Max rebranded as Just Max, and apparently they've changed the way that movies and TV and everything sort of show up on their site so that it just says creators, um, and that will include like producers and directors and some other people, and you don't really know who did what, rather than saying this was directed by this person and this was written by this person. And I think that that attempt to obfuscate things and make it harder to understand the people who are actually creating something is the entire point of how, you know, the, the studios are trying to handle this and part of why they're so interested in AI. I think a lot of folks would actually be maybe a little surprised and certainly disheartened to know that bosses in creative industries act a lot like bosses in every other industry. The response has been... Essentially, you're lucky to have a job, you ungrateful whelp. There's a line of people just like you I could hire tomorrow. And then also, like, I thought we were all friends. Like, this is the line that Starbucks gives baristas who go on strike. There's a lot of similarities across industry that might be more important than the differences. And yet nobody asks the CEOs aren't you a creative? Isn't this a labor of love for you? You know, like this sort of general societal understanding, which I blame news media a lot for, is that a strike is an interruption in a natural order of things. And the workers who go on strike are to blame for any disruptions or harms that come from it. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. And you could have long conversations or write like whole books, you know, about the attempt of capital and like bosses and, you know, of, of corporations to make their profit extracting mechanisms look like these very sort of cuddly or like friendly things. Yeah. I think there's like you're saying like a real sort of direct line to bosses saying like, oh, I just like we're all a family here and like we don't want union. That's like so, sort of somehow a third party, right. even though it's just the workers coming between us and our, our little family. And even in the context of these negotiations, one of the things that the writers are, are asking for is these more concrete minimums for staffing in terms of like numbers of writers and the amount of time that people are in rooms. Right. And the studio response was to say like, this is an unfair or sort of arbitrary quota that is, and I think this is the direct quote, counter to the creative nature of our industry. Right. And it's like, okay, you know, you're not the people making the creative decisions. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 you know, if you were, right, like I would love to see, you know, sort of what these people came up with if they had to try to write like a, a whole season of, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something. And it's funny. I think that that actually is something that, 
comes out of or is sort of like impressed into a lot of not just news media, but entertainment media. I, I don't really know exactly how to fully extricate these things, but I do think that it's quite telling that one of the sort of dominant forms of media that makes the most money and gets the most sort of push behind it is the workplace sitcom, the central thesis of which is that your coworkers are supposed to be your family. And it's like extremely rare, you know, to see anything like that where anybody really talks about the sort of material conditions of people in the in the workplace. That's, that's a great point. That's a kind of bugbear of mine. And, you know, I, I sort of am, am cautiously optimistic about what will come out of the strike and what will come out of what I, I think is a much more increased labor consciousness among people both in these like creative industries, but also sort of more broadly. When I was growing up, and I think that for, for quite a long time, the dominant Hollywood depiction of labor is, you know, oh, union bosses, like corruption, blah, 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 all the sort of things, you know, that we've heard a million times. And I think that in a lot of respects, that really is a lingering effect of like the Red Scare and like a lot of sort of purges of people in creative fields. And it does feel like there's been at least some recovery or attempts to change that. Even something like Riverdale, this adaptation of a previously existing IP that's like a kind of silly CW teen soap, had like a really fantastic subplot in uh, one of the most recent seasons where Archie from Archie Comics forms a union and they have like all these conversations about solidarity and about the importance of music and labor formations and the stuff that I would never have expected to see even two or three years ago. Well, I'm going to ask you one final and also hopeful question on that. I did want to just kind of cram in this Washington Post piece that fits this template that we're talking about that was talking about the last Hollywood writer strike, which you referenced in 2007, 2008. And the Post piece said that that strike quote, cost writers and other workers an estimated $772 million, while knock-on effects did more than $2 billion in damage to the broader California economy. Promising shows were hamstrung, promising movies were shot with half-finished scripts, promising careers were cut short, close quote. And if that wasn't enough, the piece went on to say that because of those darn strikers, TV was forced to go to reality shows, and yep, Donald Trump... You know, so I guess the idea was maybe think about that when you're supporting striking workers. You know, I I don't even think this piece was meant to be mean, but it was such the template of the labor action causes damage. The labor action causes hurt. And what went before it was somehow not causing damage and not causing hurt. And so you're supposed to be mad at the interrupters. And I just want to attach that, though, to the idea that we know that many journalists have kind of internalized the idea that they aren't workers. They're independent contractors. You know, they're just individuals doing a job and and unions are kind of icky. And who needs solidarity until it happens to you? All of which is just to say that you see change there. Besides the landscape, you see change in that mindset among writers, among journalists, the, a, a change in the idea that, no, we're not workers, no, we don't need to band together. You see something different happening there. Yeah, definitely. That's something that has been really heartening for me 
I've been in and around digital media for uh, a little over a a decade now, which feels really wild to say. (laughs) But the beginning of that period, like I was in college and I had no real sort of understanding of a lot of these issues. And I I definitely, I think if you had asked me, like I really did feel, oh, I'm lucky to be here in the intervening years. And especially since Gawker unionized in, I think, 2015, the rush of solidarity and the proliferation of unions across digital media has been really powerful. And I think that that has been both enormously meaningful for the people that are doing the work and then getting a lot of people who, like I think you said, would not have ordinarily thought of themselves as workers to see themselves as such. It also has sort of created this broader awareness that I think has led to much better journalism. In the last few years, even places like Vice or the the Washington Post or Mm -hmm. like Business Insider and these people who are sort of able to get jobs where they can cover this stuff. Um, And I think that there are like a lot of reasons why, you know, a lot of lines you can draw between the strength of these unions and the ability to produce this kind of coverage. But that also has led, I think, to a much stronger sense of worker solidarity across the industry. So I am really involved in the Freelance Solidarity Project, which organizes freelancers across digital media. As a division of the National Writers Union, we have done a lot to organize in parallel with and supporting people who are facing similarly precarious conditions. And I think that a lot of people who before would have been like, I sort of exist like above things and I I would never think of myself as being in the same position as you know, someone who has like a gig-based job. I think now people are a lot more aware of the similarity of those positions and a lot more sort of thoughtful about what's driving that precarity and, you know, what we can do to stop it, which also is something I think that you see as the WGA strike plays out right now. A lot of people who are unionized with IASI, which is the union that represents most below-the-line crew and production staff, A lot of IATSE workers have refused to cross picket lines, and all of these things are part of what makes production possible, and it's part of why so many shows have had to shut down. The sort of economic damage that you referenced, you know, that this, like, Washington Post article is talking about, not only is it caused by the bosses, but it also is the direct result of people being able to stand in solidarity and say, we are not going to allow this thing to continue to happen. And it's been really heartening to me to see so many people say, I am so amazed by the Teamsters standing with us. If they have to go out this summer, we're going to be right there. I think that's so great. It sounds like you're saying better solidarity among workers leads also to better creations and better work. I sure hope so. We've been speaking with Eric Thurm. He's campaign's coordinator for the National Writers Union. They're online at nwu.org. He's a steering committee member of the Freelance Solidarity Project, freelancesolidarity.org. And you can still find his explainer on the ongoing writer strike at gq.com. Eric Thurm, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.